This episode is brought to you by Accounting Plus. We've heard about career killers, but how about a killer career? Accounting has got it all. You'll have flexibility, great pay, and the kind of lifestyle you've always dreamed of. If that's not enough, you'll have the opportunity to make a difference by using your detective skills to investigate financial mysteries. Want in? Accounting Plus provides free resources that'll help guide you to a successful career in accounting and personal freedom. Do more. Live more. Visit joinaccountingplus.com. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up is never a good idea. It can have some terrible consequences. I mean, think about the subject matter we cover on our show. I wonder how much easier it would be if we normalized talking about negative feelings instead of lashing out when it all builds up. I recently had a session where I faced some things going on in my life I hadn't spoken to anyone about, and when I talked about it with my therapist, I realized how heavy it actually was, and I was able to see it in a different light, and it didn't feel as heavy anymore. When you need to talk, but you want a safe space for that conversation, I highly recommend BetterHelp. Even if you haven't experienced major trauma in your life, therapy is excellent for day-to-day positive coping skills and learning how to set boundaries. So if you want to give therapy a try, check out BetterHelp. It's entirely online, convenient, and flexible. It's also easy to get started. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Serial Killers today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Serial Killers. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Hi, I'm Greg Polson, and this is Serial Killers. Today, we're going to take a deep dive into the life of Henry Lee Lucas, otherwise known as the Confession Killer. I'm here with my co-host, Vanessa Richardson. Vanessa's not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she's done a lot of research for the show. Hi, everyone. We'd like to ask a quick favor. Would you leave a five-star review of Serial Killers on your favorite podcast directory? It seems so simple, but it really helps us out. And don't forget to subscribe while you're there, because a new episode comes out every Monday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast, and on Twitter at Parcast Network. Due to the graphic nature of this killer's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. If you and I were strangers, and we had just met, you would be inclined to believe me when I told you my name was Greg, just as I'd believe you if you said your name was Brittany or Ryan. There's an implicit trust that we place in strangers, especially for little details, like names, hometowns, facts about themselves. 
But have you ever thought about how easy it is for someone to lie to you, especially in tiny little details like these that you wouldn't think to question? It's very easy for a pathological liar to exploit this trust we expect out of others. After all, why wouldn't you have reason to believe the person sitting across from you? Some people lie for personal gain, as anyone who's met a used car salesman can attest to. Others may lie to get away with a crime they've committed or to avoid trouble, a tactic often used by small children or petulant teenagers. And some liars, well, they just can't help themselves. Today's subject, Henry Lee Lucas, is one of history's greatest liars. After his arrest in the 1980s, Lucas grabbed the attention of the world with his startling confessions. He claimed to have murdered over 3,000 people across the United States. His numerous confessions, ranging from the plausible to the bizarre, would eventually lead to his moniker, the Confession Killer. I killed them in every way there is except poison. There's been strangulations, there's been knifings, there's been shootings, there's been hit and runs, end quote. Why wouldn't you believe descriptions of murder from a depraved killer? The media certainly believed Lucas, and so did law enforcement officers across the country. For most of us, it would be a nightmare to be convicted of a crime we didn't commit. So what led Lucas to confess to so many different murders? And how many of these supposed crimes did Lucas actually commit? Was Lucas one of America's most prolific serial killers, or one of America's greatest conmen? It's probably safe to say that most serial killers are liars. They lie to get away with their crimes and to ensnare their victims. While that's certainly true, there's a layer of extravagance and desperation to Lucas's lies. Lucas's need to embellish his stories and constantly lie about his crimes to police are likely the product of Lucas's nurture more than his nature. As a child, Lucas was starved for attention, and his confessions helped him get that attention. As we mentioned, Lucas was placed in a national spotlight. The more he confessed, the more people noticed him. He was famous, and his desire for this positive reinforcement is understandable once we know about his upbringing. Viola Lucas gave birth to her ninth and final child, Henry Lee Lucas, on August 23, 1936. Viola and her husband, Anderson Lucas, raised Henry a few miles outside of Blacksburg, Virginia, in the Appalachian Mountains. Despite having eight other siblings, seven of these siblings had been shipped off to foster homes or other relatives before Henry was born. But Henry was anything but lucky to be left with his mother. Viola was abusive, both emotionally and physically. She regularly humiliated Henry, forcing him to dress as a girl for school and forcing him to not wear any shoes harsh punishment in the cold Virginia winter. Henry maintained that his punishments were excessive for no reason. He wasn't punished for acting out, but for causing Viola inconveniences. Henry's father, Anderson, showed more kindness toward Henry than most other people he knew. But this moonshiner had his own demons. He and Viola had divorced. But without any money, he was forced to stay in the same home with her and watch her do her job. Viola worked as a sex worker. Viola's decision to turn to sex work is understandable, especially in a small town with few jobs and many mouths to feed. But what started as a job extended into cruelty. 
she had no reason to force her sons and Anderson to watch her have sex with the men she brought home as clients. But that's what she did. In fact, Lucas cites this as his earliest memory. Quote, First thing I can remember was when my mom was in bed with another man in the house, and she made me watch it. I just couldn't stand there and watch. I had to turn my back and walk out of the house, and after I did that, she beat me, because I didn't watch it." End quote. Henry's relationship with his brother wasn't much better, and was marked by other kinds of physical abuse. When Henry was just seven years old, they were playing in their backyard, when his older brother struck Henry across the face with a knife. Viola refused to take Henry to the doctor for the injury. A childhood friend of Henry's described the eye, Henry's left, as milky white, without a pupil. Eventually, Henry was fitted with a glass eye. Of course, this didn't help him make any friends in school. To make matters worse, his father Anderson passed along a bad habit to his son. In Anderson's mind, giving Henry distilled alcohol may have been a treat, but it likely turned Henry into an alcoholic by age 10. The emotional trauma inflicted on Henry, a combination of early alcoholism and the abuse of watching his mother have sex, would obviously leave a lasting impact on any child. In Henry's case, he became a needy child who received hardly any attention at all. Forensic psychologist Geasley H. Guyanson, who interviewed Henry in prison years later, ultimately concluded that Henry's numerous lies came from a deep desire to impress the police, these figures of authority. Later on in his life, Henry would try and make up for the lack of attention he received as a child. These events alone would be enough to psychologically impact this future killer. But another incident earlier in Henry's childhood may have permanently damaged Lucas's cognitive abilities and could be to blame for his many defects. In a fit of rage, Viola struck Henry repeatedly over the head with a large piece of wood when he was just eight years old. This violent attack literally cut Henry down to the bone, and he lay unconscious for the next 36 hours without help. What Henry's family interpreted as playing dead was actually a coma. By the time his family finally took him to seek help, irrevocable brain damage had already been done to young Henry Lee Lucas's brain. We talk a lot about how environmental factors like early and inappropriate introductions to sex can cause emotional scarring. But when it comes to actual scarring, that takes its toll too. No official diagnosis was given to Henry after this incident, but his mental development would be severely hindered for the rest of his life. Baylor Hospital later assessed Henry's IQ to be 87, a sign of low average intelligence. Traumatic brain injuries, or TBIs as they're referred to in the medical community, especially in developing children, come with a range of symptoms that affect a young person outside of their intelligence quotient. It was believed in medicine that brain injuries in children were more likely to heal since the mind is plastic at a young age. But evidence now suggests that a TBI will have much longer, dramatic impacts. They can cause everything from depression, anxiety, and low self-esteem to more severe symptoms like mood swings, denial, and sexual dysfunction that can have long-term lasting effects. Without continual therapy and symptom monitoring, these effects can potentially worsen over time. 
But in the 1940s, there was limited knowledge of how trauma affected mental health. And regardless, Henry wasn't in the best home for receiving the care necessary to combat the complications that come from TBIs. It didn't help that this steady source of paternal love was violently taken away from him at an early age. Why? Because in 1947, Anderson Lucas lost both of his legs after falling asleep drunk on a train track. This garnered Anderson the name No Legs. After that, he got around at a makeshift wheelchair. He could barely move around, let alone come to the defense of his son anymore. Three years after the train incident, Anderson wheeled himself out into the snowy Virginia winter, following a fight with Viola. Drunk and exhausted, he fell asleep in the snow and never woke up. It's clear that Henry Lee Lucas suffered huge emotional pains in his childhood that he would carry with him through his adult life. But there may have been one big culmination of all these environmental factors when he was just a teenager, an alleged murder that took place when Henry was just 15. According to Henry, his sexual deviancy developed at an early age. He confessed to have hunted down animals and killed them, in order to have sex with the corpses of the animals left behind. But this practice of zoosadism, a common marker of sociopathic behavior in children and teenagers, wasn't enough for Henry. Henry cites his first murder victim as a girl of 17 years old, a young woman he abducted from a bus stop in the spring of 1951. Henry claimed animals weren't enough for him anymore. He wanted to see what a human would feel like. But when Henry took this woman to the woods to beat her as a means to rape her, she fought back, and he strangled her to death for it, later defiling the body. This is what he claimed in a prison in Texas anyway, over 30 years later. Records are spotty, and no body was ever found to support Henry's account. But with all the knowledge we have about Henry, it's not beyond the imagination to believe the story, especially when the story is so plausible. Even if this supposed murder was a lie, Lucas's first confirmed murder wouldn't be that far off, and it would strike close to home. We'll return to our story in just a moment from the Parcast Network. This episode is brought to you by Accounting Plus. We've heard about career killers, but how about a killer career? Accounting has got it all. You'll have flexibility, great pay, and the kind of lifestyle you've always dreamed of. If that's not enough, you'll have the opportunity to make a difference by using your detective skills to investigate financial mysteries. Want in? Accounting Plus provides free resources that'll help guide you to a successful career in accounting and personal freedom. Do more. Live more. Visit joinaccountingplus.com. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, the story continues. When Henry Lee Lucas was 14 years old, he ran away from home. 
His home life with Viola had grown too violent. And without his father around, Henry didn't have anything to hold him back anymore. Henry was old enough to venture out on his own. And so he did. With only an eighth grade education and limited skills, Henry made money outside of the law. Henry said, quote, I started to steal, do anything else I could to get away from home, and I couldn't get away from it, end quote. Henry felt the haunting presence of his mother with him wherever he went. And the next place he went was the Beaumont Training School for Boys. It's not as cushy as the name implies. In 1952, Henry was sent to Beaumont, the equivalent of a juvenile detention facility, after he was picked up for larceny. In some ways, Henry benefited from life away from society. It would prove to be the first stable environment he had in his life. The formerly malnourished Henry now had electricity, indoor plumbing, and multiple meals a day. He claimed to like Beaumont, but his actions begged to differ. Records from the school show escape attempts and disorderly conduct. Did Henry actually like the system? Did he lie about enjoying this structured environment? Or did his early childhood injuries and the resulting mental illnesses that came with them make him act out? It's likely he enjoyed the attention that he was given in this facility, even if it was constrictive. Whether it was restrictive or not, Henry was released less than a year later in 1953. Less than a month after his release, and at 17 years old, he raped his 12-year-old niece. This shows an escalation of his sexual perversions, but of course it also shows that his time in reform school didn't do its job. That's certainly true. Henry was soon in trouble again for problems outside of sexually assaulting his niece. Now 18 and facing charges of burglary near Richmond, Virginia, Henry was sentenced to four years in the Virginia State Penitentiary. Henry's time at Beaumont had been divisive. He liked the routine, but hated the restrictions. Serving hard time was similar in an adult facility. On the one hand, Henry learned trades in carpentry and gained experience with hard labor on the chain gangs. But on the other, it's difficult to escape your conditioning, and Henry was conditioned to drift. Henry's childhood had always been unstable, but now that unstable side was coming out in his personality. In some prison reports, Henry is described as gregarious. In others, he's dangerous with a tendency to lash out. This abrupt shift in behavior is common in victims of head injuries, like the one Henry suffered as a child. In May of 1956, two years into his stint, Henry's rebellious acts escalated. He managed to escape prison custody while working one of the road gangs out in the country. He stole a car and drove from Virginia to Ohio before stealing another vehicle and heading for Michigan. Two months later, in July of 1956, he was captured by Michigan authorities and brought up on additional charges of transporting a stolen vehicle across state lines, a federal offense. This added time onto his sentence. All said and done, Henry would spend six consecutive years in prison, minus this two-month stint and another one-day escape for good measure. In September of 1959, Henry walked out a free man. A free man with no real home to go to. All Henry knew was that he wanted to stay away from his mother. He packed up his few belongings and went back to Tecumseh, Michigan to live with his half-sister, Opal. 
It was here in Michigan where he met a young woman named Stella. Henry said, quote, She was my first true love. She just understood me, and we had plans to marry and stuff. End quote. For Henry to feel any kind of love towards another person would be rare in his life, especially with his history of abuse. To find something resembling love could be a completely life-altering change for Henry. But his happiness was short-lived. In January of 1960, as Henry and Stella discussed a potential future, a piece of Henry's past would come back to haunt him. Viola Lucas, Henry's mother, arrived in Michigan and demanded Henry return to Virginia with her and without Stella. This meeting took place in a bar near Opal's home, resulting in a public shouting match between the mother and son, one that drove Stella from the bar in tears. Viola returned to Opal's apartment where she was staying, and Henry, now drunk, just the way he was raised, went to finish the conversation they started. Henry claims that as he tried to reason with Viola, she hit him with a broomstick. Henry said, quote, I guess it was about 12 o'clock that night when she finally made me so mad that I hit her. All I remember was slapping her alongside the neck. But after I did that, I saw her start to fall. I noticed I had my knife in my hand, and she had been cut. End quote. Viola would stay alive for another painful 48 hours. Medical records officially name her cause of death as a heart attack, brought on by the assault. But Henry didn't stick around for any of Viola's final moments. As soon as the attack occurred, Henry left the premises. Not only did he leave Opal's apartment, he drove all the way back to Virginia. But after staying in Virginia for a day, Henry said, quote, I started to worry about my mother, end quote. Even after all Viola put him through, his mother stayed on his mind. He started the drive back to Michigan, but was picked up by authorities in Ohio on charges of second-degree murder. Henry said, quote, It was a terrible thing to do, but it was one of those things. I think it had to happen. End quote. Though Henry claimed he acted on self-defense, he later pleaded guilty to the crime. He was sentenced to 20 to 40 years in the state prison of Southern Michigan for killing his mother. Whether or not this was an act of self-defense, it's not surprising that this happened. Matricide, or the murder of a mother by the child, accounts for less than 1% of all murders. But there are some common factors in these crimes. Severe mental illness, hostile dependent relationship to the mother, and a domineering mother. In Henry and Viola's case, all were present. Alcohol and an unstable emotional state may have precipitated the incident, but I think Henry said it himself, it had to happen. For the second time in his life, Henry Lee Lucas was serving hard time. His experience in Michigan prison would be much less pleasant than his former forays with the correctional department. That's because Henry claimed to be haunted by the voice of his dead mother, whispering in his ear, commanding him to do, in Henry's words, bad things. The psychic pain allegedly got to be so much that Lucas slashed his wrists on two separate occasions. These suicide attempts eventually led authorities to realize that Lucas needed more help than they could give him in lockup. He was soon transferred to the Ionia State Mental Hospital. It was here that he was administered electroconvulsive therapy 
colloquially referred to as shock therapy. There is somewhat of a stigma against electroconvulsive therapy, or ECT as it's sometimes called. It's still a practice used to this day in an effort to combat severe psychosis, depression, and aggression. The difference is that now it's given under anesthesia. Unfortunately, it received its modern-day stigma because of abusive practices from the past, like not using anesthesia or using voltages that were too high for the recipient to handle. Considering what was to come in Lucas's life, it's safe to say that his therapies at the hospital didn't achieve the desired effect. His caretakers at the hospital were split on Lucas's results, with one psychiatrist saying that Lucas made good progress, while another claimed that Lucas was inclined to engage in aggressive social behavior. Regardless of his actual state of mind, Lucas was sent back to state prison after five years at the hospital to serve the remaining years on his 20 to 40 year sentence. In June of 1970, just 10 years after he murdered his mother, Henry was released from prison due to overcrowding. If Lucas had had his way though, he would have stayed behind bars. While incarcerated, Lucas asked, no, warned authorities not to release him. Lucas said, quote, let me out and I'll leave a body on your doorstep. I guarantee that, end quote. Lucas claims that he killed two girls on the day of his release from the state pen. However, no bodies were ever found. That could mean two things. Either he killed the girls and hid their bodies incredibly well, or he was doing what came so naturally to him. He lied. If he did murder two girls following his release, they would still be some of his earliest victims for a man who bragged about murdering a whole lot more people. According to Henry, there were many more murders to come, mostly thanks to the help of a new accomplice. Our story will continue in a moment after the break. And now, let's continue our story. While incarcerated, Henry Lee Lucas had been prescribed Prozac, a drug used to keep his psychosis in check and his aggression subdued. Following his 1970 release, he continued taking his medication. But records show that in August of 1971, his medication ran out and he failed to renew his prescription destabilizing his mood once again. As we've now realized, an unstable Henry doesn't make for a very safe one. Indeed. Something he quickly proved when in October of 1971, he attempted to kidnap two different girls at gunpoint as they were walking to school. These attempts were foiled each time by witnesses arriving. And as Lucas sped away, his license plate was noted. This act of local heroics, aside from saving the girls who were almost abducted, may have saved even more lives. After these attempted kidnappings, Lucas was sentenced to more time in prison in March of 1972. During this time in the early 1970s, rehabilitation of criminals was something more widely discussed. Lucas was put through more therapy during his additional time back in Michigan State Prison, but the findings were reiterated. Some thought Lucas was simply emotionally needy. Others saw him as dangerous. Regardless, he was released again in August of 1975. He lived nearly half his life behind bars at this point. And although he had told authorities that's where he belonged, he got more of a taste of what it was like to be back in the real world this time around. 
Lucas reconnected with his half-niece, Ioma Pierce, and landed some steady farmhand work from her husband in Chatham, Pennsylvania. It was here that he also found a wife in Betty Crawford. After a short courtship, they were married in December of 1975. With this marriage came three stepchildren. As is so often the case with abuse, the cycle continued. Betty Crawford's children later claimed that Lucas sexually abused them, starting on the night of Lucas and Crawford's wedding. Threatening to kill their mother if they told, the Crawford children endured this abuse for months until they could take no more of it. Finally, they told Betty. At first, Lucas denied the allegations, but he left the family soon after, never to be seen by them again. Between the years of 1976 and 1978, Lucas's whereabouts are scattered and difficult to track. Lucas later claimed that he drifted through the country for these two years, murdering freely. Tracing work records and parking tickets, as well as the testimony of relatives, we are able to track some of his movements. For instance, we know that he struck up a relationship with a woman named Rhonda Knuckles while living in Hinton, West Virginia, and working for a relative at a carpet store. Unfortunately for Rhonda, this relationship proved toxic. Rhonda later said that she noticed unusual things about Henry from the onset. Quote, he avoided me. He didn't like to be touched, end quote. He also told her that he would, quote, cut her heart out and eat it, end quote. We're again seeing this cycle of abuse continuing here. What's also interesting to note is the difficulty Henry had with emotional intimacy. He later told his biographer, Michael Cox, that he preferred necrophilia over sex with a living partner, be they human or animal. In the Bulletin of the American Academy of Psychiatry and Law, two of the most commonly stated motivators for necrophilia are attempts to overcome feelings of isolation and attempts to gain self-esteem by dominating a corpse. While necrophilia can be interpreted as a show of power, Henry's own necrophilic tendencies may underline his deep-seated self-loathing. After Rhonda tried getting her relatives involved to protect her from Henry, he certainly was scared enough to leave. He asked his brother-in-law, Wade Kaiser, to borrow his truck for work purposes, and then drove down to Jacksonville, Florida. After the vehicle was reported stolen, Henry was picked up once again for theft and put in prison for a total of about 45 days in 1975. Shortly after Henry was released, he went to a soup kitchen for a warm meal. It was here that he would meet the man that would change his life, Otis Toole. Otis and Henry had a disturbing amount in common, starting with their childhoods. Otis was born in Florida in 1947 to similarly abusive parents. His father, a terrible drunk, sexually abused Otis until he left the family years later. Instead of a reprieve, however, Otis was then sexually abused by his elder sisters, who also dressed him up like a girl. Just like Henry, Otis also had a severe head injury at a young age when he fell through his front porch, impaling his forehead on a nail that went three inches into his frontal lobe. This injury would cause epileptic seizures in Otis for the rest of his life. His mind was melded similarly to Henry's. Both boys came from abusive homes and suffered severe TBIs, and both had a disregard for human life. 
Author Sandra London spent several hours interviewing Otis and eventually came to this conclusion about him. Quote, To him, life itself is so unmeaning, and the distinction between living and dead people so blurred that killing is no more than swatting a fly. End quote. Together, the two formed a dangerous duo. After meeting in the soup kitchen, Otis invited Henry back to his home to live with him and his extended family. Although Otis had a wife, he was a known bisexual, often bringing men back to the home for sex. Henry later claimed that his relationship with Otis would fall into a similar manner. He claimed they were sleeping together. Some family members corroborated this, but this isn't what made their coupling memorable. Otis and Henry later claimed that they joined a satanic cult during this time, called the Hand of Death. In prison, Henry claimed that he and Otis were given weeks of training for hand-to-hand combat, as well as studying law enforcement codes. For Henry, this kind of exhausting training would still strain his limited mental facilities. After accomplishing his tasks, like kidnapping children and transporting them across borders before dropping them off alone in unmarked regions, Lucas said his elders would tattoo him with signs of the devil. The only problem here is that in prison years later, he didn't have any of the tattoos he claimed. Henry says his tattoos disappeared once he converted to Christianity. Here's where we start to get into the depths of Henry's lies. The elaborate, the over-the-top, the easily disproven, like these tattoos. The murderous timeline that Henry laid out was eventually dismantled. In one instance, he claimed to have killed two girls in California, but work records showed that at the time, he was working for a scrap metal company in Jacksonville, Florida. In another case, he would have had to have killed a girl in Nevada at the same time he was working another job in Florida. These lies are easy to describe, pathological. Henry lied, often in incoherent, illogical ways. But what fueled these unbelievable lies were that people were believing them. Henry's lies about his escapades would eventually grip the country, with dozens of concerned family members and law enforcement agents calling in daily to see if Lucas might be responsible for one of their missing relatives or cold cases. Henry kept confessing and kept confessing, gaining more and more notoriety while supposedly closing cases across the country. But we've already told you, Henry was a liar. Across the country, people were placing their faith in the words of a dangerous man and an unreliable narrator. Which crimes did Lucas actually commit, and which ones were just symptoms of his mania? We'll find out on the next episode of Serial Killers. Thanks again for tuning in to Serial Killers. If you want to listen to any previous episodes of Serial Killers, you can find them on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify, or on our website, parcast.com, spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. Join us next week for the conclusion of the Henry Lee Lucas story and how his new partner in crime helped lead him to the end of the line. 
As always, we thank you for listening. Have a killer week. Serial Killers was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Carrie Murphy, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Carly Madden and Maggie Admire. Serial Killers is written by Kyle Harabi and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson.